Well, let's open in prayer and we will get rolling this morning. Father, thank you that you have looked upon our lost estate and have pitied us. And we thank you that as redeemed children, you have not dealt with us after our sins. And you have not rewarded us according to our iniquities. But as your heavens are higher than the earth, so great is your mercy toward those who fear you. You have pitied us as a father. And we thank you that we can call you our father and that we can embrace that we are called sons and daughters of God. And we thank you for that, Father. Thank you for the work of your, your dear son, Jesus, who made all of this possible. And we pray that you would give us a better understanding of the sufficiency of your word to help men and women struggling with addiction. And we pray that you would give us guidance and help in this hour. And we ask for these things in the name of your son, Jesus, whom we love because he loved us first. Amen. Well, I need to tell you a little bit of a story of how uh, this became a topic that I'm very, very interested in. Uh, I was dean of students here from 1981 until 2010. And uh, after a couple of heart surgeries, my my cardiologist kept saying, get out of that job of dean of students. And I've been playing racquetball 12 years, three days a week. He said, you have the heart and lungs of a 25-year-old. You just have very small arteries. I have gravel roads where there ought to be four-lane highways. And he said, uh, a little bit of stress kind of puts you down. And uh, so I went to the president at that time, and I said, uh, I I just come from the cardiologist. You do need to know. um, uh, You are going to need a new dean of students, either because I'm dead or because uh, you allow me to train uh, a replacement, and so we did that. And we, I, when I was dean of students, I lived here on campus uh, um, just to be right here all the time. And when I resigned that position in 2010 and moved into town, my wife and I became first-time home, homeowners at 58 years old. That's not the time when most people start that little uh, endeavor. Um, I was doing some work uh, in an attic to make it into a bonus room. And I um, uh, hired a drywall crew to come in and do that portion of the work. And as I was met, witnessing to these men throughout the week, uh, I came to the last one. He said, I knew you were going to get to me. He said, I heard you talking to those other guys, and I knew I'm next. <laughs> and and uh, I, I began asking him about his salvation. He said, I came to Christ when I was a little boy. He said, my grandmother led me to the Lord. She's a godly woman, but I, I am so far from God. He said, I am... Um, uh, I'm, I'm addicted to crack and to marijuana, and I just can't shake it. So I've been in every facility in this area and, and uh, programs AA and all others, and he said, I just, I just can't shake this. I don't know what's happening. And he said, I was, I've just been begging God to send me someone who would show me some answers. And he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you as an answer to my prayer. So I, I can't, if, if God sends you to me in answer to my prayer, I can't ignore what you tell me. So I'll do anything you tell me to do. Isn't that wonderful for discipleship? <laughs> and I began working with him. This was in the summertime, and I wasn't going to begin in the uh, seminar. I didn't have heavy responsibilities till the fall. 
And I said, I'll begin working with you. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, disciple you every day. And because his, his habit needed some intervention every single day. And um, so we're going to do Bible study together and you have to start coming to church with me. And uh, as you know, addicts have friends uh, that they run with and in, in, in his uh, uh, housing project where he lived. Uh, he had uh, about five or six other friends who, who claimed to be believers, and I think uh, probably two-thirds of those were. And I said, I'll, be, I'll work with you if you come to church with me and you, if, if you do the Bible studies with me. And he said, I'll, I'll do that. So within just a couple of weeks, Patty and I had um, a whole row of men and women sitting with us in church. And God began doing some amazing things in them. And in us, and our church. Uh, these, we, we belong to a very conservative church here in Greenville, and these men and women came, you know, pierced, tattooed, flip-flopped, um, uh, baggy jeans, uh, every, you know, just, just what, um, what we would find in, in uh, the world around us. And our people loved them. And God began working. And within, to make a long story short, within two months, uh, we were running 25 on, uh, I, as we got closer to school, I, I couldn't continue that daily intervention, uh, discipleship, uh, while I, I have this day job, you know, teaching uh, in the seminary. So um, I began meeting with them on Friday nights, and uh, they don't have driver's licenses and, um, uh, or vehicles. So my wife and I would take our minivan and pick them up, and uh, some others would start helping us with that bring him to the church on Friday evenings. The, the fellow I was working with said, Jim, Friday night is a hard night. A fri- weekends are hard for me. I just get paid. He's a drywaller. He gets paid. He cashes his check on Friday before the bank closes. And he said, I got money in my, hand, my pocket and time on my hands, and that's a horrible trigger for me, and I need some help. And I said, well, let's start meeting on Friday nights. He said, that would help me a lot, and I know it would help my friends. So I wanted them to become more familiar with the church as well, so we would pick them up and we'd come to the church and I'd lock, unlock it and set up a table. Uh, some tab- they would help me set up tables in uh, one of the Sunday school classrooms and I'd prepared a PowerPoint slide and written a lesson with some discipleship things and Bible study and, and uh, I would have a lesson and then my wife, uh, we would split them up and my wife would take the women and I'd take the men and we would work through the issues in their Bible study that they had questions about in their scripture memory and and um, and within a couple of months, as I, I said, we, we were running 25, and we hired a man who'd been. I w- and I'm back at school now, and so we hired a man who'd been involved in this um, in another ministry, and he began helping us w- for for several years, and um, and he's in another ministry now. And my wife and I are, are are doing the directing of that. I began writing a curriculum for it and um, called Freedom That Lasts. And we help other churches now. They charter with us if they want to use our name. It's a registered uh, program. Anybody can use our curriculum, but if they want to use our program name, then there are certain things that they have to do, fidelity to the scriptures and evangelistic and, and uh, so forth. And we're, uh, right now we have about six other churches that are, that are doing that. And uh, I still have a couple of components of the curriculum to finish up before we really start promoting it widely. But... Um, but God's been doing a, a wonderful thing. We run every Friday night between 60 and high has been 98 um, on a Friday night. And um, uh, God's doing some wonderful things. And I want to share with you. So when I began pursuing, after I, 
uh, got out of um, the dean of students position, I finally could do some advanced uh, education. You can't, you can't do anything while you're dean of students. That's a 24-7 <laughs> job. And um, so I, I pursued a doctor ministry in uh, biblical counseling at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest and, and uh, was able to focus uh, my, uh, the, the readings and the projects in my classes toward addiction. And um, uh, so what you're going to see is a, um, a, just a portion of, of uh, some secular sources again um, who totally disavow the medical model of addiction. And not that there aren't medical consequences. Not, and, and, and one of the... Um, um, one of the things that we believe as biblical counselors is that our bodies serve our hearts. God made it that way, that our bodies serve our hearts. And it does that in, in, in uh, overt ways. If I want to pick up this, if my heart wants to pick this up, then my body goes to work mediating what my heart has decided to do. And that works on a, on a covert level as well. Uh, for example, our autonomic nervous system. You're driving down the road, two-lane highway, and um, you're uh, heading down uh, a straightaway in this country, two-lane highway, and you see a semi coming in your lane trying to pass somebody, and you, you know, do some mental calculations here and realize you're going to be his hood ornament in just a moment. And um, actually, you don't do those kind of mental calculations in prefrontal cortex. Your amygdala clicks, amygdala clicks in in an emergency, and you instantly pull over to the side, and, 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 uh, and he drives by with his horn honking, and you have all kinds of devotional thoughts about, <laughs> about this guy. And, um, and, and what, what happened is that your heart is wired by God to self-preservation. And your body helped that happen. And um, I've been doing a lot of study in the neurobiology of addiction. I'll, I'll bring out some of the things there. And it is very fascinating. These are men and women without a knowledge of God. But they are accurately tracking what happens in the brain when... And, and they said, our brains aren't addicted. We are addicted. We don't know what that means when we say we are. They're, they're talking about the heart, the person. And, um, but our brains reinforce our choices and that's called neuroplasticity. In fact, they say, you know, people say, well, you know, the brain changes when you do that. And they say, well, of course it does. Your brain changes anytime you learn anything. If your brain didn't change, you couldn't learn a thing. And what it does is reinforce the choices you've made. And if there's high emotion, whether it's drug-induced emotion or a sexual experience or pornography, when there's high emotion with it, your brain actually says, we really need to keep going down this path. It's reinforcing the choices you made. So that all other things are kind of left to the side. And what is fascinating, he was talking about F, uh, fMRIs, the functional MRIs this morning, um, this neuropsychologist, uh, neuroscientist, uh, Mark Lewis, M-A-R-C Lewis, uh, who was a heroin addict himself and involved in the hippie movement and went over to India with the rest of the people like the Beatles and, you know, studied under um, uh, Hindus over there. Um, in, in the functional MRIs, he said, actually, 
the brain of somebody who loves heroin, and, and uh, a heroin addict would call it, this is my love. Don't make me cho- choose between my wife and my drug. I know which one I'm going to go with. And he said, actually, the brain imaging of a person on heroin is exactly the same as a person ravishly in love with somebody. And he said, our our brains reinforce what our hearts desire. Now, we wouldn't say, you know, I am am deeply in love with my wife of 44 years, but I I guess I could say I'm addicted to Patty. Uh, You know, nobody else means anything. Nobody else can talk me into anyone else. Um, And and my brain helps that because those are the choices I made. So let's let's look at this, and this is from um, a a, a secular viewpoint. Uh, And I'm just... What I want to do in this session is just deconstruct our confidence in what we hear in, in the popular press. And I want to deconstruct that confidence in the disease model by the, the psychiatrists and the neuroscientists who are doing the work, again, at the, uh, at the street level. Um, I, I mean, excuse me, not at the street level, but at the, um, at the headwaters of psychiatry. Um, so that's why I call it unmasking addiction. Is it really a disease? Um, your, your notes, the introductory paragraph says drug addiction is on the rise and behavioral obsessions and compulsions are climbing as well. Observers through the years have blamed addiction on character deficiencies, environmental influences, biochemical, genetic abnormalities, and so forth. And, and these are, there are others, but these are the primary four uh, theories, uh, genetic theories, where there is inherited mechanisms that cause or predispose people to be addicted. Now, we have to understand, there are bodily weaknesses in our fallen state. There are some people who process alcohol much less effective than other people. So they're going to be more readily affected by alcohol because of genetic weakness. Just like some of us have genetic weakness uh, in our pancreas with respect to development of insulin. But that doesn't mean that we become sugar addicts. Now, some can. Um, So just because there's a weakness doesn't determine that we are forever locked into a a habitual state. It can mean that we are more easily susceptible to misusing our food or misusing alcohol. Um, Genetic theories. Metabolic theories. Um, uh, These are biological cellular adaption to chronic exposure to drugs. This is a little bit of what they're discovering with, um, with, with the neuroimaging that I was talking about. That there is biological cellular adaption, and we're talking here in, in, um, uh, areas of the brain. Uh, conditioning theories built on the idea of the cumulative reinforcement from drugs and other activities. By the way, this is kind of the habituating. There's a portion of each of these that is true. You can't just isolate one of these and say it's all because of this. Or adaption uh, theories explores the social and psychological functions performed by drugs effects. They make me feel more socially um, acceptable, I'm a little more loose when I'm with people, I'm not so uptight when I'm with people, and so it becomes a way of adapting to the challenges of life. Um, 
Other views include social environmental models, personality interpsychic models, compulsive and excessive behavior models, and biopsychosocial uh, bio models. And so in, in, in the research, there are just all kinds of dimensions that people are, are, are studying. And as I would say in, uh, as I say in the notes here, the dissenting secular theories of addiction, no one doubts the strong pull that chemical dependency places upon a drug user, even one who is a redeemed child of God. God's word, however, places the weight of responsibility upon the believer, even an addicted one, to make choices that align with his expectations for his creatures. And by the way, men and women, God doesn't put us in a place where we know right and wrong and can't do it. God never puts us in that place. We can know right and wrong and it'd be really hard to do it because of habituated behavior, because of uh, drug in, uh, um, effects on us and so forth. But God never, and, and there is a point where a person isn't, isn't rational because of a, a drunken state or, or, or so forth, where at that point they don't know right from wrong. They, know, they may know right from wrong about whether they do this or not. But there does come a state where they may not know that. They're still responsible for the first choices. Um, but that's an important principle to understand, men and women, as we're counseling anybody. That as long as we know right from wrong... God never puts us in a condition where we know what is right but can't do it. God doesn't put us down that blind alley. It may be very hard to do it because of our choices and, and so forth. When I'm sick, I, I just have had a sinus infection two weeks ago. And um, I, I, I tell folks, I'm about as spiritual as I am rested. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's, isn't it easier to be walking with God when, when you feel rested and unpressured, you know? I, but, but you get me in a state where I'm, where I'm ill and a fever and not rested because I can't breathe, you know, when, you're, when I'm trying to sleep. I have a really hard time being spiritual in those moments. So physical weakness can make doing right harder. But I'm not excused in that condition to be guilty of slanger. You know what that is? That's sleep anger. <laughs> it's anger because I'm so sleepy. You know, we call it slanger. Um, you know, I, 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 still have, I don't still have any excuse for that. Um, now, dementia is a whole other thing. And I'm, not, I'm not trying to teach out of counsel all kinds of things here. But dementia where they really don't know right from wrong. Uh, we took care of my mother-in-law for uh, a couple of years in the latter stages of dementia. And it's, some of you are, uh, understand that. It's very difficult to watch somebody you love leave you and still live there. And uh, so I'm not talking about that. When, when the brain is so degenerated for one reason or another that there is no knowledge of right and wrong. Second paragraph, there, interestingly enough, some secular research acknowledged this priority of the human heart over biology as the strongest factor for continued addictive behaviors. For example, Stanton Peel. If you've never read anything by Stanton Peel, you need to read him. He's a secular uh, man, and um, he has respect for religion, but he doesn't have, it has no place in his life. 
Um, he says in his groundbreaking work, the meaning, uh, the, his groundbreaking breaking work was the meaning of addiction. He begins a preface of his updated version with these words. Extensive research shows that addiction cannot be resolved biologically. And, and notice the highlighted words here. It is lived human experience and its interpretation. We heard about interpretation this morning. All of us are born interpreters. Everybody we minister to is an interpreter. We are meaning makers. We want to find the meaning and the purpose behind everything that's happening in our lives. That's what makes children so funny uh, and, and in their interpretation of things. I remember when uh, my wife was overdue with our third baby of uh, maybe uh, 17, 20 days, something. Like that. My wife could tell you exactly, but... Um, uh, our oldest daughter, who was then four, went to the nursery here at, at BJ, the Child Development Center, and told her teacher that if mommy doesn't have the baby by Saturday, she's going to be introduced. <laughs> okay. Well, the, in her context, that's the only interpretation she can put on this word induce. And that's what makes children so funny, because they interpret things and they get it wrong. Did you know all of us do that? And that is, we, we interpret our suffering wrong. We interpret our injustices that are against us wrongly. We interpret our, uh, the fact that God allows things. We interpret that wrongly. We get into trouble with our interpretations. And we're all interpreters. Now, I think it's interesting that secular researchers are saying it is lived human experience and its interpretation. that are central to the incidents, to the course, to the treatment, and the remission of addiction. The data presented in this book indicate that this is permanently the case. And this is why helping a person begin to see his narrative of his life, however tragic it has been, within the narrative of the grand meta-narrative of the scriptures and God and where he fits in God's scheme of things and where that is all going. Addicts often give up because there is no future. And we have a hope and a future that God gives to us. And he says that um, uh, the, the idea, on the other hand, that new genetic or neurochemical discoveries will eliminate this irrefutable truth is the greatest of all myths about addiction. Uh, another paragraph in your book that is not on a slide says addiction. He says addiction is defined by tolerance, withdrawal and craving. The inadequacy of the conventional concept lies not in the identification of these signs of addiction. They do occur but in the processes that are imagined to account for them. How did we get to this point? He says addiction is best understood as an individual's adjustment, albeit a self-defeating one, to his or her environment. It represents a habitual style of coping. And the neuroscience is weighing in very heavily on that in the same way that this is this isn't a habit just like tying our shoes. This is a habit that is so emotionally charged because of the drug that we very quickly learn new patterns that exclude everything else out there. He says, only those who are willing... Oh, let me finish that quote in your notes. Um, 
albeit it is a habitual style of coping, albeit one that the individual is capable of modifying with changing psychological and life circumstances. Neither traumatic drug withdrawal nor a person's craving for a drug is exclusively determined by physiology. Rather, the experience both of a felt need or craving for and of withdrawal from an object or involvement engages a person's expectations, his values, and his self-concept as well as a person's sense of alternative opportunities for gratification. And then another section in your notes here. Um, The best antidotes to addiction, he says, are joy and competence. Joy as a capacity to take pleasure in the people, activities, and things that are available to us. We would call it contentment. And competence as the ability to master relevant parts of the environment and the confidence that our actions make a difference for ourselves and others. And I'll just pause here. I'm, I'm not... I'm not outlining here how we, in, in, the, in this seminar necessarily and in your notes here, how we work with addicts, but just deconstructing the myth of disease, okay? But it's very interesting, uh, Mark, uh, again, Mark Lewis, whose, whose book is called The Biology of Desire. If you want to see neuroscience, that's a phenomenal book, The Biology of Desire. Um, he's not he's not a believer and he doesn't have answers for the human for the motivations of the human heart why we're doing what we're doing but he does describe the alter the, the, the things that are happening within the brain when a person is going after some a high energy thing um, repeatedly whether it be chemical or whether it be um, a, a physical experience like sex or whether it be um, cutting or OCD kinds of, of behaviors um, that the brain operates in very similar fashions for all of these and, um, and reinforces the choices and the desires of the heart. Um, and when he says the best antidotes to addiction are joy and competence, um, this is where the Bible reigns, men and women, the joy is a fruit of God's spirit. And when people come, they have very hurtful situations in their backgrounds. And they've been beaten down and they have been trashed by other people. And, and some, of their, some of their hurts are self-inflicted, as, as all of ours. I mean, all, I have, let me just pause here. I have people in our church come and say, I'd like to be a care group leader and help out, but I don't know anything about addiction. I've never taken a drink of alcohol in my life. I've never touched a drug except aspirin. How do I know what to do with anybody? And I say, you, you forgot that 1 Corinthians ten thirteen says that our problems are common to man. All of us know the experience of continuing to go back to a sinful activity, even though we know it's destroying our relationship with God and maybe with other people, but we continue to do that. All of us know that experience. Now, it may not be an experience that also has a chemical high to it, which embeds it more quickly into the brain. But all of us know that. All of us know that battle against our flesh. And our problems are common to man. Now, I don't pretend to know what anybody has gone through. None of us, no one human being knows what any other human being goes through. We have general ideas, but we haven't lived their life. 
We haven't lived in their house. We haven't lived with their parents. We haven't lived at their job. We haven't lived in the, in the fights on the street. We don't know. We may have some fairly competent uh, or, uh, or common high-level experiences, but we don't know what anybody knows. But there is one who does, and that's the Lord Jesus. And he says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. You're beaten down and you're, you, are, you are tired from doing so much. That uh, heavy laden. And he says, come unto me, all you that labor. And by the way, when you're trying to fight your flesh, your sinful desires and the habituation of your flesh without the Spirit of God, the, the, the world calls it ego fatigue. You, just, you can only strong arm yourself so much and then you throw up your hands and say it's not worth it and you head for it. Well, Jesus talks to us in that. He says, come unto me, all you that labor, you are trying so hard, but it's not happening. You, you labor and you're heavy laden. You're like, a, you're like this boat taking on water because there's so much weight here. And the circuit, breakings are pop, the circuit breakers are popping and your wagon is dragging and you, you are weary of this whole thing. He said, you know what Jesus says? Come to me. I will give you rest. Take my yoke of discipleship and learn of me. You have to learn the way I view life. You have to learn about who my father is. You have to learn about who you really are. You have to learn about my ways in this world so you can interpret life differently. And you have to learn how to have your sin forgiven and restored in fellowship with God. Learn of me and you will find rest for your souls. Nobody can promise anything like that except Jesus. And that's what we have to offer. A redeemer and the one who made us as human souls and knows the fallen state we're in and the redeemed state for those of us who know Jesus and so what we offer uh, we we I, I think I mentioned in one of the sessions um, what we offer is discipleship we, we're going to come to Jesus we're going to learn his ways we're going to learn the truth about God he's not the wolf he really is the shepherd He's not the one messing up our lives. He's the one who is with us in all of that. And we're going to learn about who God really is. We're going to learn about who we really are. And, and we don't begin our sessions with, with name tags that say, my name is Jim and I, or, or, or testimonies, my name is Jim and I'm a recovering alcoholic. We say, my name is Jim and I'm a son of the living God. Because that's our identity, folks. Our identity isn't any of our sin. Our identity isn't any of the things that have happened to us in the past. Identity, I have an ID card here that tells me who I am. I, and sometimes it's so overwhelming I need to pull it out and, you know, remind myself, you know, who I am because I forget. Um, our identity is what God calls us, not what other people have called us. Not what our own heart has called us in our moments of, of uh, self-flagellation and despair. Our true identity is what God calls us. The names he gives us. You know what he names us? He calls us his sheep. He calls us sons and daughters. He calls us children of the living God. This is who we are. This is our identity. We have a position in Christ. 
being baptized into his body and, and, and part of, and that's our union with Christ. That's our position in Christ, but our identity in Christ is what God calls us. What's on your ID card from God? That's who you are. Did you know that those concepts for people are liberating? My wife and I did Bible studies with some women uh, years ago who had been trafficked and who had been, uh, had been prostitutes and on drugs and, and d- deeply wounded, wounded people. But they'd come to Christ and they wanted help. And we sat around the dining room table with five of these women and, and I, I did some Bible studies with them. And I, I, I just I said, what, um, when God looks down on you, what does you think he sees? And they were very open with us, and they said, I am trash. I am unacceptable. I'm a failure. I'm a whore. And they listed all kinds of things. And I said, let me tell you something. God has never once thought that way about you. Not once. And they looked up like, I said, he never thought things that way. Let me show you what he says about you. And here's what he wants to do in your life. Here's how he wants to take everything you have been through, the things that you've suffered at other people's hands, the things that you've suffered at the hands of yourself. I said, I I use an illustration from Jerry Bridges in his book, Trusting God. I don't know if you, if you play chess with the world grandmaster, I I don't care how many pieces of his you take, you're toast. He knows what he can do. He's always going to win. Did you know that no matter what Satan does in bringing things our, our, our way and no matter what other sinful people bring our way or what our own sin brings our way, for a believer, God's going to win this game. This is not a problem for him. He knows through the blood of Calvary and the Spirit of God and the Word of God how to take any chessboard and win glory to himself. And that's what we do. That's what, that's what you and I need to be working on in our own lives, and that's what we offer to other people. Um, so the best antidote to addiction, he says, is joy. There's no joy in the rest of life. Now, they're going to find it within themselves and all this kind of thing. I tell you, the other thing that is so crucial in addiction, in fact, there's some secular folks that say the opposite of addiction is connection with people who love and care. As you get addicted and you start burning your bridge, your relational bridges because you've been using people and they finally cut you off and, and you're all alone. And then there's all the shame that goes with that and you don't want to be around people and you isolate and isolate and we were never made to live in an isolated fashion. Boy, that's, that's why in... in um, um, in, in, in addiction, uh, helping folks with addicts, a, a, resident, a Christian resident facility is just so helpful. It not only eliminates some of the things outside for a period of time, but it gives them connection with other people and with staff who love. And that's what a church is. I just praise God for our church, Faith Baptist, here in town that just loves ministering to men and women. And some of them are here in this audience. Just love working with men and women who have addictions. 
and are struggling. And we can provide a church family. I remember one guy, he, um, he, he got saved in Freedom at Last, and um, he had been in and out of jail, and, and um, his girlfriend just got out of detox and, and had heard about Freedom at Last in detox, because one of the guys there, his wife was in Freedom at Last. And um, so she brought her boyfriend, Michael, to, uh, to Freedom at Last. And um, he came to Christ. I, it's a wonderful story. I don't have time to tell it all. But, uh, but a couple of, in a couple of weeks, he came to Christ. Over here in the Bruin Den, his care group leader brought him over here for coffee. And, and uh, he said, you, you think I can go on Bob? He's, I mean, he's tattooed every place you can put a tat. And, and I, when I asked him, I said, uh, Michael, what do you do for a living? He said, I don't have a job. Nobody will hire me with all this ink. That's one of the dumbest things I ever did. I can't get a job. And uh, fi- finally, he, we, you know, we were able to help him find a job. But, but he, he said, they're going to let me come on Bob Jones' campus like this? And I said, well, yeah. And so uh, he came over here, and he was telling me later, he said, Jim, these students just stopped by our table and welcomed me. They were so kind. I've never seen Christians like this. And he said, Jonathan, his care group leader, was... He said, we were talking, drinking our coffee, and he opened his Bible, and it was like he was in my head. And before long, I met Jesus. He took away my sin. He said it like that. Everything. When he got baptized, he said, I just finished reading Luke. Boy, he he devoured his Bible. Just finished reading Luke, and I was reading that crucifixion part about Jesus on the cross again and he said and and it said he was hanging there between two thieves and they were mocking Jesus and he said in his baptism testimony he said I used to mock Jesus but I'm going to be with him in paradise now that is radical transformation by the gospel and he grew and he went back out to Washington State to uh, take care of his mother but he had joy Now what he needed was wisdom, competence in living life on a fallen world. And the Bible has that for us too, doesn't it? It tells us how to handle this on this world. Peel says uh, people uh, become addicted to experiences that protect them from life's challenges they can't deal with. He said the way out of addiction is to develop a range of skills and engage fully in life. Now, I'm just picking out smatterings. I'm just showing you here that he's saying this is a way of interpreting and living life that makes a difference here. He said addiction is a way of relating to the world. It is a response to an experience people get from some activity or object. They become absorbed in this experience because it provides them with essential emotional rewards but it progressively limits and harms their lives. And then he lists six criteria that define an addictive experience in your notes. It's powerful and absorbs people's feelings and thoughts, and and that's why it has such an impact on on, uh, neuroplasticity. It can be predictably and reliably produced. It provides people with essential sensations and emotions, such as feeling good about themselves or the absence of worry and pain. It produces these feelings only temporarily for the duration of the experience. It ultimately degrades other involvements and satisfactions. It narrows life very much. 
And finally, since they're getting less from their lives when away from the addiction, people are forced to increasingly return to the addictive experience as their only source of satisfaction. And he says a critical factor for achieving sobriety is psychological stability. Have to be able to weather life well. And that's what wisdom is. And so we work on many levels. We work with them about their family life. We work with them about their parenting. We work with them about their finances. We work with them about vocational skills. We have a man in our church who has a printing business here in town, uh, entire image, and most of his employees are just out of prison or out of overcomers here or out of the rescue mission, and he has a mission. to. And and these are men that are recommended by the men running these organizations who uh, or somebody who's been working with them in, in uh, the Greenville Detention Center who can, who can say, these people are serious. These men are really serious. And, um, and his, whole ministry, his whole business is about discipling his employees and providing a clean environment and an encouraging environment. And it is exciting to watch them grow. I know another man up in uh, Minneapolis who, at the, the church that he's in, has an addiction uh, ministry and um, he's an entrepreneur, and he started a business for the men in the church who are... He, and, and to work for him, you have to have a felony. That's a requirement. <laughs> you have to have a felony on your record. Clean people don't work for him. And uh, what, he, what he does, he trains them in crews of how to detail automobiles, and then he contracts with all the dealerships in town, or several of the dealerships in town, when these big rigs come in with all these cars, they unload them, and these guys tackle those cars and clean them up and detail them, and, and they get paid a good wage, and they're always going to be there, and they're on time, and they're faithful in their work, and that, that's the kind of thing a church needs to be doing. This opiate crisis is just exploding. And, and there are no answers in the secular world for that. And the church needs to step up to the plate. Because we have answers from the scriptures for how life can be fulfilled and restored and rebuilt. And I mentioned last night, we, we, do, we don't even talk about recovery. And I'm not fussing at anybody who does. I'm, I'm not saying that's a bad word. But in most people's mind, recovery means we're, go- we're going to return from our addiction back to sobriety. And we say, we- God has a lot more than sobriety for you. We're not talking about recovery back to sobriety. We're talking about development and maturity. We're going way beyond recovery. And I'm not, I'm not fussing at that. If somebody uses the word sobriety or somebody uses the word recovery, I'm not going to argue with that. I'm not going to fuss with that. And there are a lot of folks in secular facilities here in town even, as, as was mentioned this morning, these are people who love helping other people. They want to help other people. I'm not going to throw rocks at that. But when they come our way, we're going to offer them a whole different kind of treatment, so to speak, a whole different approach. Um. He says one important source of addiction is people's emotional problems and bad feelings about themselves, including anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, that is hopelessness. So these are issues that we address and teach about. He says one, uh, and, and he, has a, he has a book uh, called, um, under, uh, speaking about addiction with your children, addiction proof your child. Um, he says, preventing your kid from abusing drugs, five things, address potential emotional problems. Deal with, and, and, and if mom and dad are in conflict and addicted themselves and this kind of thing, they're not paying attention to the children. They're, they're raising themselves, and that's hard. Um, 
but, but believing parents ought to be doing this anyway. Address potential emotional problems when your kid is discouraged and depressed, and we have to teach them how to do this. Um, one of the phrases I used with our children a lot was, well, I know this is a hard experience. We have three daughters. And elementary school, you know, even, I, they would say, this is really hard. And I would say, I know, honey, it's really hard. God will help us. And, and this will help us grow. And I remember one time my five-year-old said, Daddy, do we always have to be growing? <laughs> and I said, yeah, honey, we do. Jesus will help us. So we, we frame emotional issues in a whole different context, in a different way. Engage children in positive activities. We'd, we'd take them to a nursing home and they'd learn something on the piano in third grade. They'd say, Daddy, we don't like to go there because these, these people, are, they all look mad. <laughs> or they're so loud or they're so soft. And, and, and I can't hear them. And, I, and I, I, I don't like to do that. I said, honey, there are a lot of things in life we don't do because we like them. We do it because God likes us to do it and because other people like us to do it. And we live for God and other people. And you help frame for your children the, a biblical worldview for everything we're doing. Engage them in positive activities. Reward positive behavior. and Do not accept misbehavior. Demand children be responsible and pay attention to your children. That's the secular guy speaking. Some other dissenting views. Uh, this is by uh, Arnold Ludwig. He said that this, this is a man uh, teaching psychiatry at the University of Kentucky. He spent all of his adult life uh, working on cases of alcoholism and doing research on that. So he's made it his life uh, uh, goal. He said the alcoholic's worst mind is not the bottle or bad luck, but his own mind. Typical of their thought processes are tendencies to feel sorry for themselves, to blame others for whatever goes wrong, to nurse grievances, to become preoccupied with petty concerns, to dwell on the past, to keep imaging the worse, uh, imagining the worse, to, to feel alienated from others, to shirk responsibilities, to overreact to frustrations, to act impulsively, and to become obsessed with immediate pleasures. And I have to admit it, but that's me. And I have a sneaking suspicion there's a lot of that that's you, too, in our flesh. This is who God's Spirit works on to change us in a different direction. Uh, another thing he says is the simple sentiments expressed in this book in this relatively few words have profound implications for human behavior. As I interpret these words, they mean, and here's what he says I, we're working on, they mean facing what needs to be faced. They mean avoiding boredom. They mean dealing with anger and resentments. They mean being able to tolerate frustration. They mean avoiding rationalizations and self-deception. They mean accepting personal limitations. They mean risking disapproval. They mean being empathetic and loving. They mean resolving conflicts as they arise. They mean making enlightened decisions. They mean taking responsibility for personal behavior. They mean coming to peace with themselves. And, all, uh, and above all, they mean dealing with what life has to offer and getting involved in the process of living now can i describe you what that is that's parenting it is and spiritual parenting is called discipleship Uh, miller um, uh, probably uh, miller here is the most often quoted addiction specialist researcher in the world um Miller, Forsheims, and Zwaben discuss strategies that help uh, the client develop the necessary skills and attitudes that make sobriety too good to give up. 
When addressing the spiritual component in addiction and recovery, they include these two points in their summary. Now, they, they acknowledge the spirituality of some addiction groups. And they say alcohol or other drugs may be used to forget, avoid, or cope with very real problems of living that are still present in abstinence. You stop the drug and you're still who you are. And you're still maybe in the same situation you are. That's why a resident facility is so helpful. Some people essentially self-medicate for emotional problems that could otherwise be effectively treated and that could continue or even that can that continue or even worsen with sobriety. Some of the most strongly evidence-based treatment methods for substance use disorders do not focus primarily or exclusively on the addiction itself, but aim to improve the quality of life and more general coping skills. And that's what we do at Freedom at Last. It's just discipleship. And we'll use illustrations of where we get habituated and we fall into sin and we have shame and these kinds of things. But, but it's basically, who are we before God? I, I just gave a lesson last week. We are a new person with a new name and a new purpose. And what, we're new creatures in Christ. What does that mean? We're walking through the things that are new. I want them to have God's perspective of who they are and how he looks at us. He says, what predicts sustained sobriety is the person's capacity for dealing with life's challenges. Again, that's why a Christian home, if, 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 if a child will listen, and a resident facility, if it's directing toward discipleship goals, is so helpful because we, it, it's not enough just to get this person detoxed. He still has all the problems of life to face once again. So how do we help him interpret life through God's eyes and learn God's empowerment of his grace and help him with those things? Bruce Alexander, um, you may have heard of him in the 1970s. Bruce Alexander did an experiment called Rat Park. Um, this is, remember, back in the 60s, I, I was in the 60s. At that time, I was a hippie wannabe. And um, but that's when the drug culture hit heavy and the sexual revolution and the pill, uh, the pill changed this world and Roe v. Wade. Those two things together changed society and, and uh, the, the sexual direction of it. But um, back in those days, these, um, we, we, we have all these people on LSD and psychedelic drugs and and magic mushrooms and all of this thing that was going on at that time, and, and heroin, of course. And um, scientists were just struggling as fast as they can to find out what are the long-term effects of this, how do we treat this. So they started experimenting with rats. And in the rat park it was an extension of one of these uh, studies. Uh, Bruce Alexander, who's a psychiatrist in uh, Toronto or Montreal, I think, um, uh, looked at these studies, and, and so they put these, uh, these rats in these cages. They're not easy to see in this diagram, but, but they have an open front. You see little rats peeking is out there. And, and, but there's, there's a, uh, they can't see into the next cage. So they're basically in solitary confinement. And they're given a choice for nourishment of water, uh, for hydration, either water or heroin water. And heroin's a little bit bitter, so they sweeten it a little bit. And they constantly took the heroin water. 
and became, and so we say uh, it, it was a drug that made them addicted. And Bruce Alexander came along and said, oh, wait a minute, rats don't live in solitary confinement. They run out there in the wild in, in groups. And so he created an experiment he called Rat Park. And he, this is the actual picture of Rat Park. It, 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 it goes down this way and then uh, there in this big room. And he put sawdust and dirt and tin cans and all kinds of junk in there. And he, and he unleashed a whole bunch of rats. And they're running around doing happy things that rats do. And they're playing with one another and they're playing with these things. And they're making babies and they're just having... And they gave them still two options, water and heroin water. And they never took the water. Why? They were happy rats. (laughs) If you're in solitary confinement, you want to sedate that. But if you're living in your environment the way you were made to be, you don't need that. And he said, addiction is about a person not being able to tolerate his solitary confinement or whatever other issues. And they did that with uh, vets coming back from, uh, from Vietnam. I, I, the statistics that I'm going to tell you, I, I think are close. It may not be exact, but 50%, about 50% of the men who went over there to Vietnam began using opioids within, opium within months and stayed on opium for, three, uh, for their entire tour of duty. It's a horrible place to be. Nasty stuff they were seeing. And they followed them when they came back in in longitudinal studies and found that 95% of them dropped the opium the moment they hit the U.S. soil and never relapsed. And so the question is, why? Because now the drug interfered with what they really wanted to do. They wanted to get back to their families. They wanted to get back to their, drug, uh, to their, their job. They wanted to get back to relationship with their buddies. And they dropped it. Why? They had something different to live for. Now, God was not involved in that process. But it, that, that study really began, on, and, and Rat Park really began to unseat this idea that this is a medical disease. It has a lot to do with how people are interpreting what they're living with and the, and the difficulties they have. But Bruce um, Alexander said, Today's rising tide of addiction to drug use and a thousand other habits is a consequence of people rich and poor alike being torn from the close ties to family and culture and traditional spirituality that constituted the normal fabric of life in pre-modern times. Now, his whole theory is toward, uh, he said, people are dislocated from other people and they need to be reconnected. Uh, he calls this dislocation. We call it estrangement or disconnection from God and others. He said, for the present, mainstream psychology, like mainstream medicine, is inseparably wedded to the conventional disease model, wisdom on addiction. For this reason, psychology is not particularly useful on this topic. Alexander says drug use gives users pain relief, energy, or composure that they find indispensable for coping with the obstacles that they must face in their normal lives. The first principle of the dislocation theory of addiction is that psychosocial integration, that is, we would call it connection with people, is an essential part of human well-being. That's because we're image bearers of God. And that dislocation or disconnection, the sustained absence of psychological integration, is excruciatingly painful. 
Mark Lewis, the, bio, the bioscientist I was telling you about, says addiction results from the motivated repetition of the same thoughts and behaviors until they become habitual. And he talks about how those are reinforced with different parts of the brain in the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala and, um, and, and how the HPA axis in uh, the hypothalamus and pituitary glands and adrenal glands all reinforce that with adrenaline and dopamine. Medical researchers are correct that the brain changes with addiction, but the way it changes has to do with learning and development, not disease. He says, calling addiction a disease is not only inaccurate, it is often harmful. Brain disease may be a useful metaphor for how addiction seems, but it's not a sensible explanation for how addiction works. Lewis goes on, the facility for viewing one's life as a narrative may be what's missing in addiction. You and I have a narrative. And the men and women that we work with have narratives in the, in the family of God and in the plan of God. Addicts experience something breathtaking when they can stretch their vision of themselves from the immediate present back to the past that shaped them and forward to a future that's attainable and satisfying. What they need is sensitive, intelligent, social scaffolding. That sounds like a church. Sounds like a Christian resident facility. Intelligent social scaffolding to hold the pieces of their imagined future in place while they reach toward it. So what are these comments telling us? Number one, in closing, the heart desires and chooses mood-altering experiences when faced with the challenges of life in the absence of adequate personal resources and solutions. Addictive substances and experience tempt us when we face the trials of life without grace and wisdom from God. Number two, the body chemically and neurologically reinforces the choices of the heart. God made the body to serve the heart. Therefore, a heart with new desires and goals must untrain the once wrongly trained body. And these dissenting secular views actually have discovered truth that God has already given us in a more pure and robust form in the Bible. So those, those are, I, I wouldn't say that any of that that I just, uh, that these men have discovered is essential to what you and I as Christians will do with people. We can take the Bible and, 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 and by following the Bible, all of these things are going to take place. These things are helpful for me to understand working with addicts in this way. When I see how deeply entrenched and, and uh, changeable their brain has been, it makes me more compassionate. It also makes me realize this is, this is going to take a little time. But it hasn't told me anything I don't already know from the Bible about the necessity of handling trials in a biblical fashion, of calling upon God for grace and submitting myself to him. And, you know, the biggest, the, the biggest roadblock, men and women, for all of us and for the addicts that we work with is our stubbornness. And God says that he resists the proud, the stubborn, but he gives grace, divine help to the humble. You know what my hardest times are? When I'm stubborn. And God says, well, I'm going to have to resist you, and this isn't going to feel good. 
But when I humble myself, no matter how hard it is, the, the thing is, when I humble myself, God gives divine help. And when his spirit is giving divine help, it has the flavor of joy in it. And it has the flavor of peace in it. It has a flavor of, of uh, goodness in it. If you take peace and joy and put them in a blender, the smoothie tastes like contentment. It does. And you know, with I'm content because I'm submitted to God and what he's allowed and his word is feeding me and his spirit is feeding me and I am content. I don't need anything else. I'm eating steak. Why would I want bologna sandwiches? This is what we have to offer a superior savior and a superior way of living life. I, I love when uh, when Freeman uh, mentored me a lot in this before he went to home to be with the Lord. And you know what the name of his organization was? Wisdom in Living Life Ministries. He nailed it. And his subtitle was Beyond Recovery. We're going way beyond that. The dear man is with the Lord, and I can't wait till we are too. And we will be there soon. In the meantime, he's given us a lot to do. There are a lot of people to love. There are a lot of people to disciple. There are a lot of people to um, resist sometimes in what we do. But God will give us grace for that too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice that you allow us to be your children. You didn't have to do that. And I thank you for the men and women you bring our way. And Father, for the purposes of this today, we've, we've used the word addicts. Actually, in our interactions, they're merely brothers and sisters as for they know you. And if they don't, they're image bearers of you. And we don't want to be, define them by their struggle any more than um, by anything else. And we pray that you would help us as we minister to our brothers and sisters to be the brothers and sisters that would encourage and direct and teach and reprove and instruct. Help us to that end. I thank you for these men and women here. God, I don't know what their ministries are, but would you infuse them with your grace and with the knowledge of your will in your word, grant them wisdom, I pray. We ask these things in the name of Jesus.